I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, January 9th, 2022, and this is episode 153 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is the fact that things come to you when you need them. I want to give a shout out to fellow author and podcaster Elodie Novodotsky, who sent me a note talking about how my last week's episode, you know, what I was talking about came right on time for her. And I find that happens to me a lot where I will be listening to something or watching something or reading something. And, you know, whatever that thing is will be exactly what I need at that moment. It's the whole idea of the universe is conspiring to help you. And I have a very early podcast episode labeled that, but I think it comes from Paulo Coelho, that quote, the universe is conspiring to help you. And um, it's so true. Like I find that all the time. And this week was another example of that. Um, you know, the holidays are often difficult. This year was incredibly difficult. There was like a cascade of different personal issues, conflicts, family issues going on. Everybody is, you know, physically healthy, but it was just very, very emotional and difficult. And it was, it seemed like one thing was coming after another. And so this week, it was just like another thing came on and I was already at my breaking point in being able to emotionally deal with everything. And I just felt like I had gotten to a low, a very low point. Like I was at the bottom of the valley and I felt broken. Like I really did. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get past this. And, um, I was just really upset and I was thinking, you know, I really wished that I was still religious. (laughs) Like, I really wish I could pray right now. I consider myself agnostic after being very religious most of my life. Um, But I had lost my faith and I didn't feel like (sighs) that there was an entity I could pray to. But being agnostic doesn't mean I don't believe in God. It means I don't know what's there. Like, something's there. I do think something is there. So I was thinking about that, and I had been doing all this research on um, different traditions, especially in the Black community, in terms of ancestor reverence and having altars, um, you know, for different books I've been working on. So I was like, well, there's something, there is an energy or an awareness or a force or an ancestor that can hear me. Anyone who can hear me, just please help me. I just need help. That was really all it was. It was just a cry for for any help coming from any quarter. And I got the message that I should try to meditate because I was in the midst of an anxiety attack. And um, so I opened up YouTube and I like to do guided meditations on YouTube. And before I even got to the search field to search guided meditation on my feed, One of the uh, channels that I'm subscribed to had one of those like blog posts. It wasn't a video. It was just one of the text messages. I only could see the first line in the feed. And the first line is, I feel this pressure to be, paren, insert thing here. I clicked read more. And I read the post. And it was exactly what I needed to hear at that time. It was talking about pressure and expectations and perfectionism and vulnerability. And then she mentioned something that I had not heard of before, which is this practice and philosophy of kintsugi, which is a Japanese word, um, and it means golden repair. 
And so that sent me down the rabbit hole of researching kintsugi and golden repair, which is essentially the art of putting broken pottery back together, but not gluing it back so that you're trying to hide the breaks. It's um, putting emphasis on the breaks. The, the glue or the bonding agent that they use to put the pieces back together is then dusted with gold powder, actual gold, to highlight them. And so the brokenness becomes a part of the art and becomes a part of the beauty of the art. And it celebrates and embraces the imperfections instead of trying to hide them. And that really spoke to me in that moment because I had literally just been thinking that I feel completely broken right now. And that idea that you can get to a place where you can sort of not just accept it, the brokenness, but celebrate it and and see it as beautiful and acknowledge it as a part of you. And then, um, so I was reading articles about this. I was watching videos about it. And it really helped to draw me out of that that pit that I was in at that time. And it came exactly on time. And so that is my best thing for this week is that uh, it's happened to me over the course of my life many times, when I was praying, when I was very religious, and even in this period when I don't have that same faith in in the things that I believed in before, but I do still have faith that there is something more than me out there, and that something answered me, and I, I felt extremely grateful, and um, just wanted to share that because I think that's something that a lot of people could stand to hear, you know? So that is this week's best thing. And it actually ties into my writing update, because as I was doing this research on golden repair, on this idea, and then which led me into another Japanese concept, wabi-sabi, which is um, similar. It's sort of like finding beauty in the imperfections. I realized something about the character for the second Orbit book that I have been struggling to plot. Um, I already knew that this character had a lot of guilt, that she had done something when she was a teenager that she felt extremely guilty for, and that is her wound, her emotional wound that is driving the change arc of her, this character over the course of the story. And I I know the situation that, the, that she feels guilty about, and I've played around with the specifics. And I think, you know, I was thinking that maybe she thought she did something wrong when she really didn't. And it came to me that what if she actually was to blame in some way? It's, I think it's easy and common to, to feel guilt for things that you didn't do. But it's even more difficult to feel guilt for things that you did do, that we were in the wrong, and that had consequences that harmed someone else, which is the situation that I felt myself in this week. Um, I had made a mistake and I, I had done something wrong. And so the path is for forgiveness of yourself. A lot of times the other person has already forgiven you, but it takes a lot of time and energy and work for you to forgive yourself. So that came to me that that's the character situation. That will be a much more powerful and impactful backstory. You know, I do often find myself having difficulty really putting my characters through the ringer because I love my characters and I don't, my natural instinct is not to cause anyone pain, even a fictionary, fiction, fictional, <laughs> fictionary, fictional person that I've created. Um, and I, I think that sort of guilt from real life comes in. It's like, oh my gosh, can I do this to this person? But as a writer, you have to, because it is 
a more powerful story and readers will enjoy it more. And holding back is not going to get you the reaction. I think it's not going to get you as good of a story as if you really just push a little harder and a little further and dig a little deeper. So I got some really great insights for the story that I've been struggling through. And I'm just letting those sit in my mind. I haven't actively worked on the story in a couple of days on the plot, but going to get back to it this coming week and see if those insights have helped me crack, crack the story. I was talking to my brother uh, about, you know, just struggling with this plot. And I love the idea. I'm getting to know the characters, but I haven't cracked it yet. There's a point that I feel like where it all comes together in that sort of shining light bulb moment where you're like, this is it. This is the story. And actually, a lot of times it's not just one moment, it's multiple moments. So like, that was a moment. I was like, oh, wait, she feels guilty. And she actually is guilty. So she has, she's been making amends, you know, throughout her life for the past 10 years in the story. And I knew that. But changing that from guilt over something you didn't do to guilt over something you did do, I think, um, I think it'll just make it more, a more powerful story. And so, yeah, those moments, these, like a series of moments where you crack, crack things about it. But I do think it culminates in like a bigger moment, a bigger light bulb moment when all these little moments come together and you're like, you see the whole thing very clearly. And that is what I think takes the time. You know, I've talked about before my process um, is includes taking a lot of time to think about things. And I think the time comes in like every, every day I sit and work on it. I'm giving myself the opportunity to have a breakthrough, but I do have to, you can't force a breakthrough and you kind of do have to wait for it to happen naturally. And so, of course, it doesn't happen if you're not working on it. So that is where I am with that. Other writing news. Let's just go down the list, shall we? <laughs> the Monsters We Defy, I had some additional queries from the copy editor that I uh, had to go through and um, sent those back in. So that should be going to the next phase. Savage City, I've been formatting the ebook and the print book. I sent it to the audiobook people and I did set up the pre-order yesterday. So at when you're listening to this, if it's before March 31st, 2022, you can pre-order. If it's after March 31st, you can buy it. So that was a big accomplishment. I haven't uh it's it's being published wide and I wanted to give a shout out <laughs> to Wide Wizard. Widewizard.co is a tool, it's like a a tool that you download to your browser to Chrome that allows you to fill in all your book details. And then when you publish to all the different retailers, it can speed up the process. It can automatically paste in the fields that you have to paste in over and over again. So Amazon, Kobo, Apple, Barnes & Noble, Drafted Digital, Google Play. I go to all of those. I don't go to Apple directly. I go to Apple through Drafted Digital, which is a distributor. But and I, this is the first time I'm going to Barnes & Noble Direct. I'm going to Kobo Direct, even though sometimes I go through Drafted to Digital for them as well. I like the, the aggregator or the distributor, Draft to Digital, because it it um, simplifies the process. So always Amazon Direct. But as opposed to all of those other things I listed, if I just do two and then Google Play, because that has to be separate. I just like to simplify my life. But of course, Draft to Digital takes 10% of your profits, I believe it is. So 
you're leaving money on the table. And it's kind of a correlation between money and time. So for this book, for this series, I'm going to go direct to everywhere but Apple and then use Draft Digital for libraries and for the other distributors, the kind of other countries that it gets you into. I've also considered doing Smashwords. I've never done Smashwords before, which is another place where people buy eBooks because historically they've had a very complicated like formatting process. And I'm still on the fence about Smashwords. I'm like, I've made it this far without Smashwords. I know a lot of people, especially people who started self-publishing early when Smashwords was one of the only options, you know, it was, it was, it had its heyday and I guess it's sort of fallen off as more and more companies have come into the fray. But, um, I know there are people who buy their eBooks on Smashwords, so I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, Wide Wizard, I will link to it in the show notes and it, it works really well. I was really happy with it. Um, it just, it puts a bar at the top of the browser and it was, takes you to all of the different retailer websites. And then you can just page by page paste in like 90% of the information. You still have to put in some things yourself. Um, other things that having to do with the release of this new book that I'm self-publishing was pricing. I had to decide how much it's going to cost. So being hybrid um, and ha- not having self-published a novel in many years, the pricing question is sort of like ebooks. My traditionally published ebooks are very expensive, 11, 12, 13, 99, because the publisher, their um, customer is the bookstore. Bookstores like Barnes and Noble um, and indie bookstores want you to buy books and they want the ebook to be priced higher as a more of an incentive for people to buy the physical book. So if you've been reading me an ebook, you've been and have been purchasing it, you've been paying a high price. Now the indie books obviously cannot be priced that high. Number one, if you price an ebook over $9.99, you only get 35% royalties. Amazon makes you go between $2.99 and $9.99 for the 70% royalty. Anything else is only 35%. So it doesn't really make any sense to price it that high. But the question is, where should it fall? And I think it has to do with audience. A lot of times, you know, there are going to be my readers who will read anything I write. And I'm very grateful to them. And they'll either get at the library or they will cough up the money for the expensive eBooks or the print books, you know, however they prefer to read. And then there's indie audience and a traditional audience. And I do think that there are two different audiences. So yeah, just thinking about pricing, I ended up at $4.99, which I think is fair. It doesn't devalue it. There's always that question with authors when you have books for free or 99 cents, are you devaluing it? And I'm not going to wade into that discussion right now. I think there's very good reasons for discounted books. I think there's also very good reasons to value your work more highly And, um, you know, everything can't be 99 cents or free. So yeah, choosing how to price it and then putting it up for pre-order, doing the cover reveal this week. So if you are listening to this in real time, the cover reveal will be on Thursday, January 13th, 2022. So, um, if you are not on my social, if you're not on my newsletter, you can subscribe to get that. It will be on Frolic, the actual cover reveal, but if you miss it there, it will also be on social and my newsletter, lpnlp.com slash newsletter, if you want to make sure you are the first to know things. And that's really exciting to get to be starting the process of, uh, of this book. Other writing, um, the fairy tale short stories with beta readers, starting to get feedback on that. 
And I think that's all I did this week. Now I'm going back into plotting the Orbit Book 2 and the 1830s project, writing that, trying to get that done by the end of the month, the first 100 pages. So I found myself with all of these projects coming in in different stages at the same time. And I am a little bit later than I wanted to be, but everything's getting done. I knew everything was going to get done. I was at times a little nervous about the deadlines and the dates, and I've had to push things back, obviously. But I still feel good about what I've done. I feel good about my productivity and um, sitting down and working every day and forcing myself to write five to six days a week has really just been keeping me going, you know, through all of the emotional, personal things that have been happening. I've still been writing. I've still been getting up every morning to write. And that's been really important in helping to just get the work done, but also take my mind off of things and making sure that I'm still productive. I find solace in the work. And I find that even when difficult things happen um, that do affect creativity, thinking of myself as a, as a professional creative person and sitting in the chair and, and just spending the time on it, I, I'm still able to be creative. I'm still able to, yeah, sort of lose myself in the work, in the story. And, and that's one of the reasons why I started writing in the first place. I mean, I've been writing since I was um, five years old, even, even before then. I have the first story I wrote when I was five. And writing for me was always an escape and a way, a way to make sense of feelings, a way to uh, get my emotions out and sort of organize them and make them make sense. And I talk about blood on the page, you know, making sure that there's something of you in the story that you're, I mean, for me, it, it, it's necessary. I don't feel like I have written a good story if there's no blood on the page, if there's no none of my like DNA in it. And I don't think it's necessary for every writer to write from a place of pain or every story. You know, there are stories that are lighter, obviously. Everything can't be. Uh, and I don't want to write stories that bring people down, but I, I do think it's important to bring something of myself to it. Which brings me to an article that uh, I read. It was in The New Yorker. And it's it's behind a paywall, but you get a few free per week, so hopefully you'll be able to see it. It's called The Case Against the Trauma Plot. Uh, the subtitle says, fiction writers love it, filmmakers can't resist it, but does this trope deepen characters or flatten them into a set of symptoms? It's sort of a long article, but I think it's worth a read. I found it really fascinating. And the article talks about how trauma has become synonymous with backstory, And that is a relatively recent phenomenon that people like Jane Austen weren't concerned about, you know, the character's wound and things like that. And I, I don't know. I mean, yes, uh, Lizzie Bennet doesn't have a traumatic backstory. She has a traumatic present where, you know, when her father dies, her and her sisters and her mother will be homeless with no money because of the laws of England at the time. So they had to get married to rich men if they wanted to live and eat and not be on the streets or in the workhouse or whatever. So that is sort of the backstory that is, I consider that a kind of a wound where, you know, for all of them that they have to, you know, their motivating factor and the thing that causes them pain and and sort of the internal, maybe not on the page, but thoughts of their internal value and worth. And um, when she responds to Darcy's first proposal, you know, it's, it's standing up for her own worth, her pride 
or her prejudice, I guess. She's the prejudiced one in the situation against him. But they're both prideful and they're both prejudiced, right? So her pride is standing up for her own value as a person where the laws of the land did not view her as an equal whole person deserving of even inheriting the house that she lived in. I digress. Uh, it's a really interesting article uh, because I do think that modern craft, fiction craft at least, teaches us that characters have this wound, this knot, this lie, different people call it different things, that motivates them. And it's usually something in their past that was very painful and traumatic that have affected them. And that a positive character arc is about growing out of that. A negative character arc is about deepening into that situation or falling back into it. That's sort of the basis of a lot of character theory. And it's character theory that I certainly think is is powerful and impactful. It also reminded me of a concept that I'm seeing talked about more often. I saw an, another recent tweet about this. And this is from um, from authors of color talking about Western storytelling and how things like, you know, all stories don't need um, three-act structures or hero's journey is a very Western concept. The most recent one I saw was on character agency, I believe, and how that's like a Western concept. And in other cultures, the characters don't need to have the same kind of agency. And a lot of times people of color, just survival is enough and they don't have to, you know, be heroic or something like that. And, you know, I don't know a lot about storytelling in other cultures. I'm American. I'm Western. I don't have, I mean, I have like black culture, but I don't have any other cultures to reference. I'm not an immigrant. I don't come from, you know, other countries. Slaves were not immigrants. I'm sorry. (laughs) So yeah, you know, many, many generations of Americanness. And so the idea of, of Western storytelling makes sense to me. It's compelling to me. Like I find stories that are done with the sort of common craft teachings to be emotionally resonant and stories that are done in other ways, I guess I'm not used to, aren't as resonant or compelling for me. And it's fine to feel differently. It's fine if there's another culture that you come from and those things uh, are different from you or are different for you. That that's fine, but I think in some way there's a valid criticism, uh, but also not because if you are going to write stories in another tradition, like there, I, I was reading about this sort of Japanese style of storytelling that is different than like the three act structure. Well, I'm sure in Japan that's very common and they find it compelling because that's their culture. But to say that it's wrong for like American audiences not to appreciate that. Is a strong statement. You know, there's all this talk about cultural appropriation. But on the one hand, if the same people who are going to be upset about cultural appropriation also being upset about Western culture's actual structures and how, I guess, in the West, we don't, we're not as accepting of other cultures' structures, just seems to be a little bit hypocritical. Maybe I don't understand. Anyway, I think there's important discussions to be had about our assumptions uh, in terms of craft and storytelling and how we can incorporate other ideas to make things fresh and new and not, you know, formulaic. Because when, when, not, when not done well, you know, these, these rules can become a formula that is very predictable and that's not good. And I also think that people should write whatever stories they want. You know, they should be able to 
grow and explore and do different kinds of structures if they want to. But also recognize that at least in genre fiction, you know, literary is a whole different beast. But in genre fiction, there are expectations. And that the point of what we're doing is for readers to have an enjoyable experience, whether that is horror, you know, um, thriller, you know, serial killer, mysteries, there's still, in, you can call it an enjoyable experience to be had, diving into the world of a book and, and living in that story. And so if the readers are not having good experiences, then all of the theory about, you know, craft and, and culture and whatever kind of have to go out the window. I don't know. I might be wrong about that. But that is what I think at the moment. So my goals for the coming week are to continue plotting my second book for Orbit and to get, I'm going to try for three chapters to be revised on this 1830s project and also marketing for Savage City, continue marketing efforts and developing this marketing plan and, and start building buzz and all that kind of stuff. So that's it for me for this week. I hope that you have a wonderful week. I hope the new year is treating you well and that you will find what you need. You'll get the message, messages that you need when you need them. And I'll talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.